Welcome to How Church Works. This endeavor is focused primarily on sharing conversation and discovering its purpose and function. While in each episode there will be a starting topic, our podcast will be off the reins from typical scripted content, warranting more intimate and creative discussion. Our desire is to find truth in love, and on our end, behind the mic, we believe that Yeshua, or Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, and as a person, is the truth. As our own church, we aim to obey the scriptures, and we are given a duty to equip and build up followers of the way. We hope this will be an accessible platform for such a duty through our conversations. As we continue, you'll be able to perceive more into our lives as disciples of Christ, but we invite you in, as a listener, to meditate on these conversations and, hopefully, can continue them with others in your lives. Again, welcome. So, we're going to talk about Genesis 28.10 through verses 22. Mm -hmm. Um, It is our church's Torah portion for this week. Yes. um, For our our, um, gathering, and there are a lot of... Um, deep parallels. I mean, one of them I can actually think of off the top of my head with John 1, Yeshua telling Nathaniel and the group, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man because Jacob has his dream about um, uh, what what Yahweh showing him as a staircase, um, what that means, just digging further into that. Um, so I don't really know. We, we were wanting to talk about the significance of dreams, the significance of this specific revelation um, and paralleling that to how it uh, demonstrates the image of God and kind of, you know, it is a deep, deep well. Um, scripture is a deep, deep well. Um, but scratching the surface of that and getting, I guess, as deep as we can go in the next hour or so. Sweet. <laughs> um, yeah, I... Uh, There's the setup. <laughs> uh, so... For me, I'm like trying to think. Okay, how do you, um, how, how could I uh, start a conversation that dovetails with itself? This is like there are a lot of uh, connected parts. So the first thing is, is it is our, uh, it is the public reading that our church does. But just for the interest of whoever's listening, um, there is a, a Torah reading cycle that Jews have followed for thousands of years. It's called the Babylonian reading cycle. Okay, or the uh, they have a weekly Torah reading. Okay, so every week you have a parashat hashavua. You have a, a portion of the Torah that's read per week. And what they do is, they break down the Torah into uh, weekly readings so that they can accomplish reading through the entire first five books of Moses within a year. And each reading has seven kriyas or seven sections. But what we have done at our church is. We are on a septennial reading cycle. So instead of reading through the Torah every year, we read through the Torah every seven years. And the way we've uh, broken that down is each week we read typically one Kriya. So uh, this is a, a this is a, a single reading um, in the Jewish annual cycle, one single of the seven of a single reading. Um, so uh, it's a significant Kriya, um, a significant reading. Um, it, ha- it is it is pregnant with great comport and importance for uh, the Jewish people and any kind of follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very important. Um, so we can we can touch it. Uh, I, I think uh, you know you had suggested maybe reading through it. I tend to like complicate reading through these things when I read through it in the original language, and I and I can't help myself. And I'm going to be touching the original language a lot. So if you want like. You can, you know, pull it up and uh, I'll kind of set the stage and you can read it in the LEB. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
So uh, just a little bit of background. Basically, at this point in the narrative of uh, Bereshit, of Genesis, um, Yaakov, Jacob, he has already taken Esau's blessing. He's already gotten his birthright. Um, Esau is really, you know, he's nursing himself with the idea of killing his brother. And Rebecca comes up with this idea. Okay, son, we're going to send you out of here. That way I don't lose two of you in one day. Uh, and she says, I want my son to not be married to one of the women of Canaan, of Canaan. Like a, and uh, so his father Isaac concedes to this, blesses Yaakov and sends him on uh, back to the land of uh, his people, Rebecca's family, to go find a wife um, rather than taking a wife from the land of Canaan. And uh, we will learn from the end of this uh, portion that he, he basically goes with nothing but his staff and um, his cloak, you know, uh, and which is very bare bones. And he makes this, he's going to make this long journey. And this uh, Torah portion basically talks about leaving the land of his father and mother that he grew up in and knew and heading to the, the land of, you know, his mother's forefathers, mm-hmm. um, Abraham, in, his, in a sense, Abraham's forefathers. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, up to this point, we have not seen Yahweh directly interact, or El Shaddai directly inter- interact with Jacob. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is the first interaction. Right. Um, Which so. is interesting toward the end, though, too. I mean, I was talking with Samantha about this. Um, like how Jacob says, if Yahweh's going to do this, then he'll be my God. Mm-hmm. Um which is just, a, I mean, that's a different tangent about, like, what does it mean that he's his God now? Um, no, but that's at the heart of it. I'm glad you said it. This vision is what it means. Yeah. It, it, this, is, this vision is literally a foretaste of what it means that God will be Jacob's God. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Um, um, I mean, so what I could do is I'll just go through the verses, okay. and I'll, I will try to summarize essentially what some of the verses say. I'll try to pick out specific ones to read aloud. Um, I think the staircase is a significant one. We'll just yeah, kind of yeah. go through it. So Jacob, um, he went out from Beersheba, went to Haran. Mm-hmm. He spent the night at a place. The sun had set. He takes one of the stones of the place and puts it under his head and slept. And he dreamed and behold, a stairway was set on the earth and its top touched the heavens. And behold, angels of God were going up and going down on it. And behold, Yahweh was standing beside him. And he said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the ground which you are sleeping, I will give to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and through your descendants. Now behold, I'm with you. I'll keep where, keep you wherever you go. I will bring you to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised to you. Jacob awakes, and he says, Yahweh is indeed in this place, and I didn't know. Then he was afraid and say, how awesome is this place? This is nothing else than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Yaakov rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and set it up as a stone pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel. However, the name of the city was formerly Luz. Um, and Yaakov made a vow saying, If God will be with me and protect me on this way that I'm going, gives me food to eat and clothing to wear. If I return to peace in the ho- to, if I return in peace to the house of my father, then Yahweh will become my God. And the stone I've set up as a pillar shall be the house of God. And all that I you give to me, I will certainly give a tenth to you. Okay. That's the yeah. Good job. That's the portion this All right, week. That's the end of the podcast. Yeah. Um, the, good job. All right. Uh, yeah. So um, 
This, and I'm really glad to have you read it because I'd kind of be chomping at the bit otherwise. Um, I just have to tell myself and coach myself that there, this is a singular podcast episode and we will not exhaust um, the infinitudes of <laughs> all the things that can be drawn out of this. I cannot, I cannot overemphasize the importance of this passage, yeah. but I will seek to reduce and how much English sucks. <laughs> yeah, English. Yeah, I mean English. You know, um, as a as a vehicle or a, a mode of transport of ideas, English is not super suited yeah. to uh, to Hebrew. But it really, I think a lot of the reasons English is not suited to it has little to do with English itself and everything to do with how English evolved uh, with its semantical domains and its philosophies and how English is used by English speakers. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I think the way English speakers use English sucks as a vehicle to carry back, uh, you know, what's in the Hebrew, but we can do it. We can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say like Hebrew is a very functional and humble language. It, it's a concrete language. It is very functional. Um, it's very, uh, it's a radical language, so it's root-based, and those roots are per, uh, mainly verbs. And even in the uh, the syntax, the typical syntax, uh, it is verbal. Mm-hmm. So it's a very verbal language, so that in English, for example, the syntax is typically subject-verb-object, mm-hmm. but in Hebrew, it's mm-hmm. it's verb-subject-object. Verb, subject, object. verb mm-hmm. comes first. The action's always first. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I did have a question. That yeah. I've been wondering, why here... Mm-hmm. Why did God show Jacob this here? At this spot? Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, you know, I, it, let's, it'd be fun to say, if we could pick who we'd interview, of course we'd ask God. Um, that'd <laughs> yeah, be great. We could. Uh, but but let's, let's imagine this. What if we asked Jacob, we asked Jacob, why did he pick there? Mm-hmm. I think you'd get a, an interesting answer. Um, if you asked post-Exodus Israelites... Why did he pick there? Now that would give you a very interesting question. I always, I always like to touch that with when we're analyzing Genesis because Bereshit, Genesis was not written by eyewitnesses. Okay, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it is uh, constructed. The, the 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 kernels, the core kernels of these narratives are eyewitness accounts by contemporaneous Israelites. Genesis, not so. Um, it is attributed to Moshe, uh, and I, I see no reason to discount that, but the way he would have gotten it would have been a combination of oral tradition and or revelation from Yah. Um, and then a question arises, of course, he's going to pick certain things that happen contemporaneously that were significant to Israel, right? Um, but what do you mean contemporaneously? Sorry, uh, sorry, sorry. So. I, I just, no, that's okay. In in the four books that follow Genesis, he's gonna pick things that happen in their lifetimes, right? It's like in their lifetime, their witnesses, and and he may feel more duty bound to add in narrative, even if he doesn't want to, you know, mm. to tell them where they came from, where they're going. All narratives are constructed, you know, and and they have they're gonna inform the people who receive that narrative. But Genesis is interesting because a question arises out of all the information that could have been included in this account that preceded Israel. Remember, Israel is the one who safeguards the Torah. Israel is the one who receives the Torah, writes the Torah, composes it, safeguards it. So uh, a question arises, out of all the material Moshe could have drawn from, right, for us as Gentiles outside of Israel, you know, all the questions we would want to force maybe some of those traditions to answer, why did he pick 
this event or that event or mm -hmm. you know why did he include this or exclude that and the large answer is he only included that which would be beneficial for post exodus israelites to move and navigate their covenant correctly um, and that's quite a different metric for what gets included and excluded so that comes back full circle how would and this is a great person to ask hey moshe why did you why did why was bethel picked Betel, you know, um, if you ask Joshua, who's Moses, Moses Moshe's successor, mm -hmm. I mean, that would have very great significance. Here's, here's how very simply, um, it's, he's an Ephraimite. It's in the tribe of Ephraim. Joseph is the progenitor of the tribe of Ephraim, who was the chosen anointed leader at the prior to how they entered into Egypt. Um, and Joshua ends up being the successor and leader. And that is where the ark ends up resting. The ark will end up resting in Betel. Um, and it's very... Was it called Betel before Well, we know. the ark there? Here's what's interesting is we have this kind of commentary. Okay. Now, either Moshe included the commentary so you would know because... So that the original hearers would know, hey, I know that this territory was called Luz, but hey, we call it Betel. Or it was it could have arrived later that a priestly uh, a, a priestly scribe added that addendum or redacted it and added that addendum to keep it vibrant and alive. Hey, this play this was the place that the Canaanites called loose, but we you know we call it this this type of idea. So we already have um, we already have present the idea of uh, the name of the place being different from the Gentiles who named it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the reason it receives its name is this event. So Israel is the one who renames it. Right. And it's because of this event. Right. Um, and naming a place is, I'm not saying that Yaakov didn't rename it. I absolutely believe Yaakov, the man, renamed the place Betel. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but an interesting thing uh, happen, arises historically. Who gives it, I'm not being a butt, but who gives a shit if a guy renamed something and his, aunts and his descendants end up being enslaved for 400 years? <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna call it lose. <laughs> right, right. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> those guys aren't here anymore, um, yeah, and yeah. so they're you know they're those considerations. Yeah, um, but the house of God, house of God. This is so important. That's really what uh, I mean. Literally, like this is the this is a way to synopsize the whole point of all of Scripture, all the testimony of God. Is you know, um, I had a friend who. You know, I, I'm, I struggle with being succinct and I struggle with uh, choosing words, you know, in a, in a reduced way, more carefully. And uh, I suck at it now, but oh, man, I'm so much better than I used to be. And I had a, a good, a good brother in Messiah, um, you know, Joe Ray, who um, really could see through a lot of that suck and be patient with me. <laughs> And uh, he would say, he jokingly has said that when I met you, you had two settings off and on. And uh, <laughs> it's like a fire hose. And uh, the brother was very patient with me and sought to edify me and um, sought to sharpen me. And uh, he's like, well, I, I saw a part of it as giving you my ear to try to help maybe construct maybe off settings eight, nine, and 10, you know, maybe right. <laughs> as a right. start. And I remember him saying to me when I, Soon after I met him, I dumped on him my understanding of how the Torah correlated to the New Test, you know, the New Covenant, and that was kind of the basis of his question. Really, his question was like, "Hey, do these laws apply?" You know, and I just fire hosed him. 
And he patiently sat through that session. And But he really got a good twist of the knife in at the end because he said, hey, I, I kind of, how would you say all that in, you know, a sentence? And, um, and I can't remember if he suggested the, the, the thought experiment or if I employed a thought experiment to do what he suggested. Either way, it was his idea to reduce. And he was like, I want you to try to say all that again, but not like you just did. Um, and and I, I remember landing on this thought experiment of, okay, how do I say every the point of all of scripture that I was trying to reveal to him if I was falling off of a building? <laughs> so like if I fall, and so I ran the simulation, okay. Splat. Over there, yeah. I was splat. And you just tried this over and over again. And uh, I landed on, son, build me a house. And that phrase works for anything in scripture. Okay. Son, build me a house. Son, build me a house. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and this, this portion of the Torah captures that. Mm-hmm. It is laden with so much significance. Um, and... Uh, so, I mean, when we can start by saying, okay, what the hell happened? Right. What, what is he showing him? <laughs> yeah. It's not, I don't know. We call it a staircase in English, but I'm sure it's yeah, a lot yeah, more yeah. intense, a lot more profound and there you go. terrifying. That's, than... that's a great way to, that's a great way to explode um, this topic because the first off, we all grant, let's start with what we grant. It's a, ge- it, it has to do with geography. The, mm-hmm. the, the geography bookends our reading. Yeah. Leaving a place and going towards a place and then stopping in a place, renaming a geographical location. But then there are geographical elements like memorials and markers out of stone. Okay. And then uh, he sees a physical structure. The, 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 the locus of this revelation, the center, the, the, you know, the fulcrum, if you imagine you know, you know, uh, the pr- proper simple machine, I'm, it evades me now, but the fulcrum, that little triangle yeah, underneath yeah. the seesaw, mm-hmm. the fulcrum of this, oh, it does look like a fulcrum too. The fulcrum of this uh, thing is the structure, whatever it is. Yeah. Okay? And so we have, we've got that to start with. Uh, we know that the means of revelation is a dream. Uh, in this sequence, very similar to the fathers. Okay, similar to the fathers, and when I say the fathers, I mean the fathers all the way back to Adam. Uh, Bereshit is going to present communi- communion with Yahweh, communion with Yah, as really heavily taking place at night. Heavily taking place at night. Um, and that's true for Adam. You know, the, Adam and uh, Genesis 1, humanity's first experience of a day is at night. Right. Their first experience after creation is the seventh day, which is Shabbat, which starts in the evening. So there's this idea, this ancient idea that communion with Yah, there's this significance with starting in the darkness, starting in the place that's unestablished, starting in the place where we're weakest, starting the, you know. Um, right, right. Most vulnerable. Most vulnerable, but also most susceptible to seeing the light of Yah. You know, that's an interesting in concept. In the dark, yeah. In the yeah. dark, you know. Uh, and there's, the, there's, this, there's this idea that lurks even in the very first few verses of Genesis that the darkness and the waters, these will be temporarily tolerated, but eventually they will be removed somehow. Overcome might be a better verb. Mm. And that, that lurks throughout the, um, that, that's a cosmic geographical claim that lurks throughout all of the Bible. Honestly, that's how, I mean, that's, those are the two things that disappear. In, Gen- yeah. in Revelation that are that are not there. Right. Um, so 
just like uh, so Adam receives Chava when he goes into a deep sleep. Okay. Yes. It seems it would seem to be at night would be yeah. the idea. It doesn't require at night, but it would seem to be because later in the, the second Adam in a way, the second Adam, uh, which is Avraham, he also has a great vision. It's often, it's at night. It's at night that he's taken outside. Let me take the word of Yah, pierced him and takes him outside, count the stars. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, He goes onto a mountain, and that's important for this, and tries to, he's, God tells him a way to prepare these seven sacrifices that he cuts in half and he fall, it, the, the sun goes down, just like our event here in Yahweh. Uh, he has a, a you know an appearance, a, a vision of the word of Yah. And this, uh, Yahweh takes a form uh, of a boiling pot at that, you know, um, this is a consistent theme that continues. And so here we are with Yaakov at night approaching a locale, um, except this is a, it seems to be a flat locale. We have no indication that this is uh, particularly like, he's not on a mountain. Right. Okay. Um, and that, that, that becomes more significant for the difference in the roles of Avraham and Yaakov. Um, and so, they, you know, he goes to sleep. Now, what's incredible about this is uh, you get a, f- <laughs> this sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Um, the act of the man, who's in the image of Adam, Jacob, laying his head on a stone, the form of a man resting on a stone, is itself a precursor to what the events of the dream are. Um, this is where, this is where I want to touch some like inception level crap because it's going to be, it's fun. And this part, I want you to take part in this clay and you can, I'm going to give you the floor for a second because I'm okay with the deviation here. Um, you have often asked the question when the prophets gaze at, uh, these visions, they have ecstatic visions out of body experience or, or experiences that are so somatically engrossing that they can't tell the difference between what's in front of them and reality. Do the visions they have have any ontological existence, or are they just analogs, figurative and analogy? Mm-hmm. So, talk about that. Why is that so? Why is that? How does that question come up for you? And and what do you mean by it? Expand on it. Expand on it. Well, I guess it's the. I mean, because the first time I actually, I mean, the first time I actually really after uh, young adulthood or adulthood, I encountered the person Yeshua, or I, mm-hmm. I believe the person was through a dream. Yeah. And I, at the level of the vulnerability, I, I felt in the dream, my consciousness was like, and this is going to sound really theoretical. This is going to sound super like meta and esoteric and weird, but like in my belief and in my understanding, the knowledge I'm able to gain, um, is deeper. Mm -hmm. And when I awake, I, I lose that accessibility to an understanding that in a, in a, in my sleeping state, in my Mm -hmm. consciousness, Mm I, I have that in a dream. Mm -hmm. Everything about my heart was revealed to me by another person. That's what I woke up knowing. And I remember, um, I I don't think that's going to hit the, I don't think that'll hit. That's just the, if anybody heard that, that's the WhatsApp icon. And I don't think that (laughs) anyway, I, um, I woke up knowing that I met a person who knew everything about me. It's another person. And that was everything shown about me. And I don't believe that I could have been shown that without being in a dream state. Something that was unseen but real mm. was shown to me. Mm. Um, and I guess in the way I'm, I was asking that, like, is there an actual staircase there? Yes. Is yeah. is Jacob being shown something that exists at yeah. what would be 
Yeah. Beitel. Yeah, yeah. And did, does the dream, uh, is the conscious, is our consciousness in a dream state like being used as a facility for more unseen things yeah and to to be shown yeah. in order to move the person in order to to reveal what is unseen in order to establish covenant like is it hmm. is it is it another reality in which we're able to enact like faithfulness yeah or you, you know so and, is it an ontological state is it a different state where it actually yeah. exists it has yeah. an ontological existence mm-hmm. not just a figment it's not and know. i know that's a deviation from talking about it what is. the significance of the staircases and and we'll just we'll remember. we lack a deviation <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll remember that we're talking about how jacob laying his head on the stone yeah is, I, is significant but yeah as far as the the ontological discussion of of dreams like i just found that i found that uh something I was kind of trying to chew on, like, is he actually seeing it? Is this something that is there? Yeah, I think we, you know, uh, we, it's good. It's a good deviation. Um, And, you know, uh, he was shown something that still, the significance of the thing that he was shown is still being unveiled, still unraveling today. That's... A heavy statement. Some dude with a staff and a cloak left mom and dad because his bro wanted to kill him. And he's walking through random places. My bro picks up a stone to lay his head. Some ancient man is ready to lay his head down on a stone. And this is the time. This is the moment where the creator of the cosmos is like, let me really bring it together. Right. That, that, that's about <laughs> why it's like why that and why then <laughs> you know? it's a i mean the god's humble man god's so humble god's so humble it's like god's most dangerous attribute but it, it's a good deviation so let's talk about just for a second did yakov before we talk about what he saw because that's going to bring us back into the narrative let's ask did he see a existing reality you know did he did he see that um let's use some metaphor here, some analogs. Uh, if we, I, I, I use this uh, metaphor on Shabbat, and I think it's good to recycle here. Um, we have a carpet in our, uh, in the common space in our household's living room. And uh, it's one of these like, you know, shaggy carpets, whatever. And you can, you know, it forms a pattern. And at our level, you know, our height, our frame of reference, we can see that pattern. Um, and, and what I'm going to try to do here is show that we may not have to pick. We, we may not have to pick between, is it just an analog and a figment, or does it actually exist? Um, if you, it would be like trying to reveal to a tardigrade, a tiny microscopic animal, New York City. <laughs> okay, so it's a macrocosm. If you zoom in on that carpet, you zoom in on that carpet and you were the size of, honey, I shrunk my kids, smaller than an ant. Okay, one, one twentieth of an ant. Um, it, it would look, just look like wild, chaotic fibers, and it would it would seem like gigantic, strange fibrous savanna grass that you're w- kind of wading through. But imagine if somebody who had our vantage point could share their vantage point with you and zoom out, and you could see the macrocosm. You would then see the pattern on the rug. 
-hmm. your experience of that rug in no way shape or form you can't access that pattern you can't um and but this is part of what this seems to me to be an ontological possibility because the elohim which they do figure in our reading they're called malachim here which is a lower form of elohim um uh unseen they're they're essentially occupants of heaven cosmic geography is entirely what this reading is about okay cosmic geography um and the shamayim the heavens it's a plural term the heavens it's plural uh they are multiple spaces not a space uh and the earth is the seen realm the realm that we have access to and then there are the heavens and uh a being that occupies that space the heavens is called an elohim loosely that's a that's a part of you know it's essentially the word elohim is a a cosmic geography marker a locative marker and so this week's reading touches that these beings are presented as macrocosmically larger than us down to uh they appear large in various visions of the prophets like tall large looming enormous massive um and uh and all the way down to when however they do it whatever your particular belief is if you believe that these elohim copulated with human women in genesis 6 that that motif Mm -hmm. okay Uh, the nephilim or or if through some kind of higher dimensional influence on uh our germline or whatever this kind of some kind of perverse interaction whether they did it that way the result of that union whether it's a literal physical union or a a kind of dimensional union mm-hmm. is larger humans, the Nephilim. Right. <laughs> so there are these analogs for giants. Macrocosm is what, the way I'm using the word giant. And so if God can share his frame of reference with us, we could actually be seeing a macrocosmic frame of reference the same way that if I zoom in on Clay's arm, you would see these weird, the weird, the epidermis is so bizarre. You'd see these weird patterns and whatever. But if I zoom out, I can see all of clay. Right. So I don't think we need to pick. Right. He could have seen something. He could have seen something that does have an ontological existence. Even right. though we would never. It's not a staircase. It. It's a wormhole. Sure. In, yeah. in a weird way. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that's a way to do it. If you, yeah, that, that's a way to, to work that out. Um, the other thing too is now we're, we can plug, we can, hop a metaphor here and jump to the question of instead of the question of does that thing actually have an ontological existence we can also sidestep and connect to this question of our faculty which you've touched the difference between waking consciousness and sleeping consciousness um this is really fucked up and i don't know why people do this but and and maybe i'm more messed up because i read about it but um the (laughs) i remember reading years ago here we go i remember reading years ago that um I don't know if they blinded the elephants first, which would be so fucked up, but uh, people took blind elephants and they took um, optic nerves and rewired part of the brain, the part of the brain that uh, takes in sight to the part of, so they took the optical aspects of the the brain, the physical brain, and um, through surgical procedure connected to the 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 implementation of the ears um uh what ensued was these creatures were not just like completely hapless weird useless tortured 
individuals. Instead, they gain some kind of faculty that we might want to say is akin to something like echolocation or the ability to simulate images through sound. Right. Okay. <laughs> now, so track with me this idea of a rewiring of uh, a different intention. Uh, whatever happens to us when we are dreaming, it could be the case that we have the capacity for taking in actual data through a means that is kind of hacked or a cross wiring or uh, a reverse engineering might be a better way to say it. Um, and so while we, while it is possible for us to eat Benadryl and watch a scary movie and that influence some of the things we interact with in our right, mind, that's right. a, that is to say our waking hours can have a causal influence on yes. the events of our dreams. That does not negate the possibility of a, a, a downward causation of some or, or, or other, or at the very least, even whether it's downward, it could be lateral, other revelation coming in through other means, actual data. It's just translated through bizarre faculty. Uh, and that would right. be like the elephant having something akin to visualization through hearing. <laughs> right. Uh, and so yeah. now it doesn't mean there aren't sound waves and it doesn't mean right. there aren't objects. It just means the faculty. And this is true of all faculties, by the way. We, we, we It's worth, you know, it's it's it's. It's time to spank that. You know, we should spank that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's too, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, could I mess up? And this is just an impractical application. Like, I don't I don't know. Could I mess up a dream that the Lord is trying to give me? Mess it up. What like, do you mean mess like up? say, for example, Jacob's like, holy crap, I'm dreaming. And he's like, he wants to fly now. You know what I mean? And it wasn't like, <laughs> yeah. he didn't get what God yeah. was actually trying to show him. Yeah. You know, and I'm... Yeah, and often I think whenever there is a dream or a dream is given, like in scripture, or yeah. we say something is from Yeshua. Sure, um, it's it. I, I don't know. It's like what influence do I have? Is he setting it up in a way? Mm -hmm. Like what is he trying to reveal for me? Mm -hmm. Reveal to me when he mm -hmm. is giving me a dream, and like mm -hmm. does he know how I'll react? And I don't yeah. know. There's just so many. Mm -hmm. There's so many questions in this deviation that. Um, no, this is great. I think the deviation is good. I think it, it's important that. Uh, to be able to explore it and talk about it. Um, uh, you know, I, I kind of disagreed with something you said earlier, mm -hmm. and this is a way to touch that. Mm -hmm. There is an idea, like, I can see things in dreams that I could never see in my waking hours. I, I think that's true. The, the statement holds, and it's true if we mean how I regularly experience in my waking hours. But it's false if God intervenes the same way he does in your sleeping consciousness, if he intervenes in your waking consciousness. Now, the difference is the amount of damage that can be done and the amount of judgment that Yahweh entrusts to the one being revealed to. At this point, we would use the technical term prophet. That's what a prophet is, is a recipient of revelation from a divine being or being of the heavenly realms, okay, from the heavens. Um, the higher up the ladder of revelation, the more judgment Yah entrusts to the prophet, which is why Ezekiel, Isaiah, they have waking, ecstatic, meaning like out of body or, or somatically engrossed, visions. If they pinch themselves, there's no differentiation between what they're, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that's the highest form of revelation where you literally can't tell the difference between your ont your ontological consciousness and waking, like you can't end the vision. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now that's an, that's a level of entrustment. A dream is a lob. A dream might be akin to if you watch Captain America, when he wakes up out of the ice, they create a fake 50s scenario. 
Right. Okay. And it's like, let's make it feel nice for Steve Rogers. That's a dream. Because just like Steve Rogers can burst out of that room and see the reality behind it, God could do something similar in your waking hours. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah. A, a dream's a soft lob because the, the other thing is your question is, could I mess up a dream that touches it? It's like, yeah, it, it's degrees. Just like we're talking about degrees of entrustment from God in terms of the means of the revelation, there could also be degrees of severity of the revelation. This would be like... Um, when I feed my children, I feed my little children, you know, or a toddler, you know, I don't have a toddler anymore, but if you feed a toddler, it's like sometimes you just put the food in, on the bowl and put it on the on the high chair and they, you know, they do it. And sometimes I think Revelation could be like that. I'll give you something and yeah, you can screw around with it and I'm going to fly and draw whatever. But right. there are times where it's like, no, dude, this one right here is never eating their broccoli. Daddy's going to sit down. Daddy's going to hold the spoon. Daddy might even have to cup her, cup her jaw and be like, you're eating the broccoli, dude. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think God can do that with dreams. Right. And I, yeah, like the, depending on the importance or the, uh, that, uh, that he places on the revelation, you know, he can make it more engrossing. And we have had dreams where the matter is so decided, even for the Gentiles, the matter is so decided that it's not, there's no deviation. Like you have to watch it. And even when you wake up in a sweat, you see it a second time in a different way. Like Pharaoh, what I'm alluding to is Pharaoh having the dream of, the fatness and leanness first with the, I think the grains and then the cows are reverse. Um, the matter is established in heaven. And so you're going to, you're forced to kind of behold it. And he's really troubled by it. You know, um, he was kind of forced to see it. And then when fear, yeah. when fear is involved, um, I think you got a kind of a captive audience <laughs> and Yaakov responds to this and afterwards and says, this is a dreadful place. Surely this is a dreadful fear inspiring place. Awful is the old English way to say it, the archaic. Awful. When we say awful, or awesome. Awesome. Awesome or awful are like there's synonyms in archaic English. It it means a sense of full of awe or dread, like a kind of majestic dread. Right. (laughs) Where it's, yeah. Um, So if we, if we, we can hop back in, we can hop back into the reading if it's cool with you. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, Ask me a question, what, though. I mean, what, what is well? What is the, what is the? Because you were talking about that. It's this is full of uh, meaning, but like Jacob laying his head on the stone, uh-huh. like what that what that parallels to, oh, or yeah. like yeah. why the staircase? When yeah. like why show that? Yeah. When why yes. why then? Yeah. Why that? You know. Okay, so there is a there's a lot of ontological overlap, meaning they're going to be categories that bleed into each other on purpose. Okay. Um, Suffice it to say, humans are a complex unity. Um, We are echad, we are one. Just like Yah is one. Um, Yah is one, and yet he is a complex unity, and we bear his image. We too are a complex unity. Uh, and and this is this is borne out in the shadow or copy of the image of God, which is the tabernacle. You, you know, you'll see that in the book of Hebrews, um, and you're going to see that in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Numbers, uh, and uh, and in here. This is the precursor to that. Um, <clears throat> and so, suffice it to say, there's a type of revelation. I just we talked about dreams. There's another type of revelation um, where you're very, a mem- you know, a human's members and by members, I just mean the external outward data takers 
yeah, your yeah. physical body. Yeah, like, well, that, that's lack of a better word. The physical body will matter, confuse but... people with biological definitions. So I'll just right. I'll just name them: your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, your head by extension. Okay, so your head is the holder of these. Your neck, which turns and moves. Your shoulders, which bear burden. Your arms, which raise or carry things. Your trunk, which is for strength. Your member, right, which is for procreation. Uh, mm-hmm. Your legs, uh, mm-hmm. which are for moving and and moving around in space your feet for that okay what i've named are your members essentially what they are is the external facing uh faculties by which humans take in testimony that which is seen and heard which are your highest members your eyes and your ears um and so the uh there is a type of prophecy where a prophet moves with their members and their very movement and action in this in the realm of stuff, the scene realm, you know, that we all share and occupy, their very movement is itself revealing something from God. Uh, an example is Isaiah has to reveal that an exile will happen. The word exile is galut, which means nakedness, because kings, cruel kings, would strip survivors naked and march them to new locales. And they would be ashamed and enslaved. And this is galut. The word nakedness also means exile. So how did how did Isaiah reveal that? Well he got out his he got out his uh, feather pen and he wrote it on a scroll. No. He actually walked around Jerusalem naked for three years. <laughs> yeah. God. <laughs> so it's like, hey hey dad, why is that <laughs> right? Why is that bearded man naked? Because he's weird. Uh, stay son, stay away. We're gonna <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that's a way, so, and not just that, you have a lot of, it's kind of, it's essentially like somatic revelation, the same way that we use the mouth to generate words and those words are vehicles for com for ideas and we translate them mm-hmm. and interpret them. Our very movement of body and action can be pregnant with interpretation or even used as a vehicle to pass on. And so this happens a lot in the Torah An example, there are examples that go all the way into the temple cult, like. There's a certain type of offering called a wave offering. And, and essentially, it's how do we take a thing from the heavenly realm that belongs to Yahweh and then make it somewhat belong to the earthly realm to priests? How do we transfer ownership of a heavenly object? Well, they use somatic movement. It's a wave offering. Have you ever heard the word wave offering? <laughs> the priests take a portion, whatever it is, and they do a motion and a movement. And the motion itself translates it into somewhat in the scene realm. It's their property. It transfers their property. Um and so you have that with, you know, in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, you have it with, like I said, prophets, by the way, a, a notion is this, it's a very low form of prophecy. It's a low form. It's for immature child, childish people who've been stunted through idolatry or disobedience. And so when the history of Israel progresses worse, when it gets worse, when idolatry progresses, you have a prophet like Yechezkel, Ezekiel, and his is almost entirely somatic. He has words that he shares, but for the most part, no, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's almost only just, I'm giving it to you like babies. I'm having to talk to you in sign language, essentially. And, and that's called, we, I'll call it pantomime prophecy, or you could just call it LARPing. You know, people know what LARPing right, is. Right, All that to say for background, there's Jacob. And he late, watch what you have. You have a God who's in the place wanting to rest on Jacob on a stone. Jacob is that thing that people call the letter. Back out. Another thing. This is bizarre because Jacob is the image of God in the form of in the form of Adam, form of man, laying on a stone. 
it, Jacob, in that sense, is in the seen realm what Yahweh is in the heavenly realm. He is Yahweh, and the stone is that structure. Do <laughs> um, you understand? Like, literally, and, and, and one of the key words for this is, uh, one of the things that explodes this is the Hebrew word for rest, which is where we get Shabbat. It, it is a locative term. Shabbat is a, a, a cosmic geographical term. It's time-orientated, but it has to do with a shift in geography where an opening is created. And when a being takes advantage of that opening and shift and they occupy a space, we call that Shabbat, which is why we have words like the, the glory of Yah or the Shekinah that rests on the tabernacle or rests. Yahweh rests. It doesn't mean I'm pooped. Uh, it means like... He instantiates himself. <laughs> he does. Another way we could say it is um, you take... I, I got the trophy and I'm, I, I and I took it and placed it in it. There it rests mm-hmm. on the shelf prominently. Okay, um, it rests on my hand. It, 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 it's a it, it means stationed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Jacob laying his head on the stone to rest and station himself on that stone. The stone represents creation. the structure. Creation, yes, ultimately, but that structure, which because the stone is laid on the ground. The ground would be creation in this metaphor, and the stone is the structure. At this point, it'd be good to stop saying structure and talk about the structure for a second. Um, yeah. uh, and so let, let's let's do a little bit of, um, we don't like, I know we don't like, maybe some people like it. I like it. I don't, so I, I don't want to say that. So Maybe a lot of people don't like the Hebrew homework that we do, so I'm just going to. Liven things up and make it worse. And sorry, do not we're do, sorry. We're gonna do Acadian homework. Oh Got him. God. No, <laughs> oh no. Um, so the uh, what's interesting is uh, if we look at the our verb, our word rather. Let's go to the uh, the verse of greatest importance for this. Which verse is that, my brother? Let's go to the what verse number is the one that speaks of that first mentions the stairway. Uh, let's there see. it is. I think it's 12. I believe it's 12. You can confirm. 12, yep. Is it 12? That's the first time. I think it's the first time it occurs. Yeah. Okay. Vayachalom. Uh, okay. And he, and he dreamed. Okay. He, he dreamed. Um, Jacob dreamed. Okay. Vayachalom. Vehine. And behold. Okay. The contents of the dream are going to be visually depicted that we can look at. And behold. Give your attention in Hebrew. Sulam mutzav arza. Sulam mutzav arza. A sulam rested, just like we're saying. A sulam. A, su- a sulam, right now I'm not going to define it, but the object's called it the structure that people translate as ladder. Okay, in your Sunday school picture, I don't know how you see it. Maybe you see it like a painter's ladder. That's how I've seen it depicted. It's ridiculous. But the sulam is, um, it is resting but the sense of resting is important because the 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 the, the shorish the root is going to be uh it's going to occur in the same passage where later on in the passage yaakov uh, erects a memorial that verb for erect is related to this word for rested mm-hmm. so it's something that is stationed for the purpose like it's constructed and stationed for a purpose um on the earth the sulam so let's talk about this word sulam okay um in Hebrew, it comes from, it, it can be translated, the best translation is actually staircase, okay, or stairway. It's so hard, is it? Stair, you know, I don't know, stairway to heaven is what people. Um, right. Is it like an up thing? Yeah, it is. And, and uh, we're going to, so it comes, it's related, in Hebrew, 
uh, it's related to a verb called salal, which means to mound up or to exalt, mm -hmm. to mound up through mound, through building for, uh, through the, the construction of mounds. Um, now what's interesting is this, not only is sulam, um, it does it have a root in Hebrew word. Most Hebrew words would have some kind of, you know, verbal etymology, but it also is kind of a loan word. And that's kind of what I want to talk about with the Akkadian. Um, so it, it only occurs, this Hebrew noun, sulam, it occurs one time in the Old Testament. It's right here. Right here? Right here. Uh, and But there is there is an Akkadian cognate, okay? Similtu, um, and uh, the, the way that that happens is it's a... Uh, it's a metathesis of the second and third consonants and a feminine ending. So essentially like a Akkadian word gets brought into Hebrew. Okay. And that has a specialized meaning of stairway or ramp, uh -huh. a stairway or ramp. Now this is different. I'm actually going to, I'm going to pull up a dictionary of it. Okay. It's an architectural term in Akkadian. Akkadian is in, um, it's an ancient, it's the oldest Semitic language on record. It's what the old, it's kind of like what ancient, early proto-Assyrians spoke, okay? It eventually got uh, displaced by Old Aramaic, um, but it's a very ancient language. Um, and it is, uh, it's an architectural term, stair or staircase leading to a citadel, Rabbi Samiltu. Uh, it also can mean a high official, so by extension it can talk about a person, mm -hmm. a ruler, a head. That matters because this the word rosh or head, which means ruler, is used to describe the top of it. Um, it is a stairwell, a staircase, okay? A, 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 when we get the idea of ladder, it's more like a mounded siege ladder is one use militaristically, okay? But really, it's a mountain ascent or a climbing, okay? Um, and it's related to uh, essentially stepped or equipped with stairs, uh, sumulu, another Akkadian word. Right. Now, if you look at uh, another Akkadian word, which is helpful, helpful here, Zikuratu, Zikuratu, or Sikuratu, okay? Um, a ziggurat, a temple tower, a mountain peak, the summit of a mountain. God showing Jacob a ziggurat. Yes. Now, this is what's, but, but this is incredible because the early... Ziggurats were used for other gods, though, right? Okay, this is what's, this is what's in, incredible. First off, well, you have the problem of physics, okay? Uh, this is a... Uh, <laughs> okay, let, let's start with, let's start with this, Okay. Ancient people, to say you took part in the, the ancient anthropological experience, the human experience, is to say, um, really, you believed in an unseen realm that joined with the seen realm. And there, it's, in, it's incessantly, not always, but nearly incessantly linked with mountains. Because you ask the question, I am down here. The stars and their movements have great significance up there. And somehow the color is blue and whatever, and they're there at night, and, and there's... The powers that be are uh, located upward. Okay, this is an, I'm reasoning like an ancient person. Uh, most people believe the sky was solid. Most ancient people. That's not just an Israelite thing. That's true of uh, Akkadians, Egyptians, the Chinese, uh, the Aztecs. There's <laughs> now some, for some people it would be solid like gems. Like that's what the Hebrews and ancient Semitic people thought. Okay, rakia is like a beaten out material. Same word used for the beaten out steps on the altar. Um, or it could be like a cloth or some kind of fabric, whatever, but it's solid and it holds back another uh, reality. Okay. Um, what bridges that upward reality for humans in ancient times? They're on the ground. There's that upward reality. And this, what's the closest thing to bridging that naturally? A mountain. A mountain. A mountain. 
Wow, mountain. Sorry. We literally have the word. Yeah, it's like. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that was my knee. <laughs> um, so. Uh, <laughs> so a somatic um, prophecy. Yeah, exactly. There you go, right there. Uh, don't talk about this stuff. <laughs> Breaking reality. Um, so the, um, you have you have a mountain. Okay, let's let's describe the base of that mountain. We have words like the bottom. You know, uh, and from the bottom comes the top. Emerges the top. Low from the low emerges the high. The basic from the basic emerges the complex. From the base emerges the peak. Okay, but it ends up also functioning as a bridge for ancient people. And so they believe that these mountains actually have cosmic significance. And anything that an ancient person believes, typically if you believe something has cosmic significance, really, I mean, we do this shit, we do this with sticky notes. If you think something has significance, you tend to try to annotate it or memorialize it. Okay. Right. Uh, one, you know, some, and I don't mean to use these terms like they're just, you know, I don't want to scare away people. Like I love, I, I love the scriptures. I love Yeshua of Nazareth. I believe the scriptures are so laden with deep spiritual significance and I would die for the truth, which is testified to in the scriptures. Okay. Love the scriptures. So when I use terminology like this, I hope I don't scare people. Um, but there is a, you know, there, uh, you know, religious Study scholars, you know, anthropologists, um, sociologists, they'll use a term, uh, they, they have, the term magic has uh, sociological meanings, not not the way, you know, like D&D, Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Um, right. And there's a subset of magic called sympathetic magic, which is you effectively tap into the power source through uh, a sympathetic uh controlled object or motion or whatever some kind of, in the word sim which is simulated similar we get this you know yeah this could you root. give an example of that i can oh everybody's familiar with the notion of a voodoo doll yeah okay like there's a i want to i want to affect power over another person and so i create a simulacra a sim you know a sympathetic a, okay. a, a figure like them and by moving around and screwing around with the doll i impact the other person okay um well, in a similar, a lot of a lot of ritual is sympathetic in this sense. Okay, and we must keep in mind, I was really humble. Okay, he incessantly he meets people where they are. They have ideas already, you know. And the Torah, there's a lot of stuff in the Torah that Yahweh doesn't invent. The people already have ideas, and he just interacts with it and rearranges rearranges their use of that idea even if he has plans to discard the idea. Examples of this abound. You know, Yahweh doesn't invent polygamy. Uh, he doesn't invent divorce. He doesn't invent, um, there's so many different, teraphim, which is a scary one in Exodus. People don't know about it. He doesn't, and yet the Torah will say, here's what you have to do with these things. Okay, the, the Pharisees try to say this to Yeshua, where they're like, is it lawful for us to divorce, whatever? And Yeshua basically quotes and says, you know, God put man and woman together. You shouldn't divorce, ex you know, except for the, and he quotes something that lines up with Hillel the rabbi, the Pharisee. And they're like, gotcha. We gotcha now, <laughs> right? Why did Moshe give us a certificate of divorce? And Yeshua says something so freaking profound. He's just like, it's one of the few, I think it's one of the few times where Mashiach just like rolls a nat 20 in terms of like authority. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's right. like, well, Moshe gave that, they gave you a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your heart. But it was not so in the beginning. He just says this little passing line. That passing line is incredible. What it means is things in the Torah don't necessarily reflect God's beauty. 
They reflect right. Israel's ugliness. Right. Like with God giving Saul as a king. Sure. They didn't. Bingo. That's exactly right. But now take this as like we have something like ugliness that reflects our ugliness. But then there are other things that are benign that are non-good or bad. They just, you know, they're, they're like ontological accidents. Like maybe when God... Like, do you think, here's a question, like, if you read Genesis 18, Yahweh shows up with, in a human form to Abraham with two other human forms, and they eat with him, and he washes their feet. Do you think they were wearing Birkenstocks? I mean, they, right, yeah. okay, they weren't naked, and they had clothes. What clothing were they wearing? Maybe they were just in MC Hammer pants, and that's how they yeah. knew that these were divine <laughs> beings. Um, but, the, so then the question becomes like, okay, he donned himself, D-O-N-N, okay, he donned himself in... Uh, in a way that would be understood. And so he shows him his structure. This, But the ziggurat is not just peculiar to Babylon or to Sumeria. This is the earliest pyramids, okay, of Egypt. They are they're simulated mountains. They are man-made mountains. Simulated mountain. mountains. Yeah. He's showing him a man-made mountain. A man-made mountain or a man-constructed or a, maybe not man-constructed because we see Malachim here. But, right. but a constructed mountain. And, and we know that for the verb. It's not natural. It's a construct. Right. Uh, it, it is, it, it's architectural. Okay. An engineered mountain would be a way to say it. Um, and, uh, and because of its origins, its divine origin, it, it, the idea would be this is not engineered by human hands. The ones using it are malachim. They're divine beings coming back and forth doing the bidding of heaven on earth. And it, the top of it touches the heavens. The foot of it touches the earth. It is now. Now here's what's so incredible to me because I'm at odds with a lot of Hebrew. I'm in. I'm in line with some of the uh, modern translations, but I'm at odds with a lot of the Hebrew commentators on this verse because the verb. Okay, uh, for uh, if you go up to, and actually I can see that there. What do you see there? Elohim and the the messengers of the gods or the messenger of God, you know, they're going up and going down. We don't know whether it's, uh, yeah, the name of God. Okay, uh, if we go to verse thirteen, Yahweh is standing, stationed. Hine, Ya Nitzav Alav. Now, here's what's interesting: the the word Alav, Al means on. There's a, a different flavor of translation. So in the LEB, when you read it, it said he was standing there by he's, him. He's beside him. By Jacob. Right. Because of can mean him or it. The way I think Rashi and other Jewish translators would have it understood is standing on the very top of the ziggurat, yelling to Yaakov. He's at the top of it. Um, now, both of those translations are permissible. Now, it's bizarre. It would match, one thing, it would match and suit the idea of Jacob's head on the stone. But I don't think that's where he is. You think he's beside him? I think he's beside him. And there's multiple reasons. I would make the argument he's beside him because he says, I will not leave you. I'm here with you. Mm-hmm. I also think it's this powerful prophetic visualization of the distinction between the religion Yahweh will bring and all the other religions. Here's the ziggurat in this staircase. That as you ascend, you lose your identity and are destroyed and absorbed into divinity. This is an ancient old idea. It's in Hinduism, Buddhism. It's all over the place. But I stand next to you. Yeah. We'll construct it. <laughs> I'm with you. I'll provide for you. 
I'm beneath even the my servants, the malachim. I'm the humble one. I won't leave you. I'm yeah. next to you. You know, it's a powerful, powerful picture. But this ziggurat, okay, here's what's interesting about ziggurats. They are man-made mountains, all right? The top level is nobody can go in it except priests in rare occasions. It's the bedroom of a god. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is, is it would be the center of cities. The ca- it, 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 it justifies a caste system. The priests get to live to the, the uh, penultimate level, live in it. Like the penultimate level, the one beneath the top, they can live in it. It's really great for areas that are, uh, most civilizations are started by rivers that typically flood. So it's really great that the upper echelons can literally escape a flood through a man-made mountain and watch the lower levels be flooded. Um, and then beneath that, you have artisans and people who are scribes and whatever. I mean, literally, you have a caste system that is physically set up. It's typically how ziggurats operate, okay, the ancient conception. Mm-hmm. We don't see that here. We see servants going up and down from heaven, but essentially you see a house. And uh, the conclusion of Yaakov isn't, like an example is, you know, Kepha, Peter, when he sees Yeshua transfigured and Eliyahu and Moshe on the mountains, right. and, you know, Mark casts him saying, uh, can we build booths for you and shelters and structures? Right. Now, part of the reason is, it's like, duh. I mean, I love Kepha. I love Peter. He's like... <laughs> He's, he just totally gets it, you know, uh, especially when it comes to like a rabbi, like to make sure that Yeshua's on the water, for example, as a Jewish Talmud, a Jewish disciple, he's like, if it's you, call me out to you. The reason why is because a rabbi chooses Talmudim, he chooses disciples because they're going to do everything the rabbi does. It's like, this is really fucking cool. Like, if it's really you, I'll know you're my rabbi if you call me out to you. Yeah, come out here, you know. Um, and they want to accentuate that. They want they want deeper access to their rabbi. They want to be. They want to make it last. They want to, you know. So it's like, let us build structures here for you. Now he didn't know. Mark says he was scared and didn't know what to say. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the idea is similar. Let me build a structure. This is Yaakov's conclusion. This is what you want, God. But <laughs> Yaakov, I fucking love Yaakov. He's <laughs> he's a he's had a short end of it. He's not been, he's not been the favorite son of his father. Um, he was a man of shalom and peace. His brother was a brutish man, a hunter, which is associated with empire and ruthlessness. I mean, he's ready to kill him, and he's so it's all there. And he's overlooked, and he always has to get things through. He just doesn't have probably the safety that his soul longs for, the assurances. You know, everything's always just out of his reach. You know, and so he even tries to make a deal with God. You know, he's like, it's the first vow. Um, the first yeah. vow in all of the in all of scripture, yeah. he makes a vow. Um, but his vow reveals what he how he judges this situation. How he's terrified, and he anoints this stone. Later on, the verb mashach is going to be used in Genesis thirty one, literally, like the word where we get mashiach. He the first mashiach is always a structure, not a human. You anoint the tabernacle with oil. He anointed the stone with oil, a messiah. That's going to why oil? Sorry, that's that's a great question. Uh, it's simple. Uh, first off, olive trees were associated with olive oil, um, and it, it became associated with the god because with gods. So ancient. This is a really great um, note. Uh, in ancient, the ancient peoples uh, that are within the scope of the scripture were not white European people. Um, they were dark-skinned uh, Middle Eastern peoples, and uh, in dry, arid climates. Uh, they would use oil for their face, for their skin, 
and uh, it, it was common. But another reason too it became associated is it became associated with wealth for that reason. But then also it glistens and shines. Like the shining one. Shining one. It glistens and it shines, and so it's this way to again Thank a sympathetic thing. It's kind of a sympathetic thing where you're like you can like must be in the presence of like. You know, it'd be like saying if I go to a dude, you know. Maybe if I'm a person who lives in a tent city and I've got like three outfits, one of them is my best, and I get invited to a millionaire's house, I'd probably pick my best outfit, even if I'm still homeless. You know what I mean? Like I, I try to, you know what I mean? Like sees like. And so there's a way that, again, it's associative at the very least. Yeah. Um, and so he anoints it with oil. Mm-hmm. But it also, by, by implication, it means something else through that. The idea of oil being poured out. First, it's cr- the olives are pressed and crushed, and it becomes a means of designating someone to move like a shining one in a peculiar function and so it becomes in mashach means to dump oil on someone's head but that doesn't mean like let's just go around dumping oil on people's heads it's it's it, it by by metonymy it means the one who has been designated to function with the blessing or help typically the help and power of the god that they shine like and so by extension it ends up meaning spirit a wind that comes on someone and they're anointed. Um, they have the job. They're 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 backed. They're backed. They're the candidate right, okay. that's backed by okay. divinity through the the medium of the spirit and power. Okay. Um, and so chosen, designated, empowered. Okay. You know. Yeah. Uh, divinely empowered. Um, and and uh, to to say too, I mean, with what Jacob vows, like I I I loved it. I love it because it it'll demonstrate too what like the importance of Jacob just wrestling with God to I I just believe it's one of those things that Yeshua loves like people taking him up on what he says he's gonna do yeah and them moving in a way and saying I want to see if you'll do this yeah I want it not in a way to test yeah but in a way to say you say this I'll believe in you and I'll move in it Yes. If you bring me back to my father's house in safety, yeah. you'll and in peace, you'll be my God. Yeah. Like and Jacob will demonstrate too. He his name changes because he wrestles with him. Yes. And he treats him like a person. He treats yeah. him like an Abba to yeah. to have a relationship with. And he yes. he's like, I wanna know who you are. I wanna yes. know if this is you. Yeah. You know? So Absolutely. it's it's one of those things that I'm like I I just found it beautiful too. Okay, so it is beautiful and it's unresolved. The resolution is going to come if you fulfill the vow, God. Yeah. And the resolution answers your point. What does it mean for God to be my God and us to be his people? This is such a simple question, and I'm so, it's so sorry. You know, I'm like, I almost feel sorry for myself, and I want to apologize to God sometimes. And I'm like, <laughs> I hear certain ideas that are so dumb, and they're prevailing. Um, <laughs> and one of the dumb ideas is, uh, he's already our God because he created us. <laughs> It's like, okay, dude, (laughs) why would he promise? It's like, (laughs) I promise you that the first letter of my name, God, will always remain G. It's like, what? (laughs) It's a stupid promise. Uh, No, that's not what it means. It means that prior to the promise, they weren't, he wasn't their God. What does it mean then? It does not just mean, well, other things created you and I only created that. Like, no. Okay. No, I mean, unless you think that's a totally out of line, that's what the percent, the five percenters believe. Yeah. Um, that, you know, white people were the creation of a different God. Um, now, the, <laughs> the, we have, uh, no, the idea he's our God and will be his person. Yaakov says that. But Yaakov actually gets it. 
he understands what it means. Very simply, it means, oh, you won't be up there. Like, you'll live with us in a shrine. You'll live there with us. Right now, you're a nomad. Because Abraham, you chose a nomad. You've been, you know, if we read with the lens, the enlightened lens of the post-Exodus Israelites, and let's be more specific, the enlightened lens of post-Exodus Israelite priests, that's really who is in charge of keeping the scripture alive and knowing it in and out. So they'll do things that give them, you know, this laden with peculiar significance for them to be able to perform those duties. Um, and if we know the narrative, the, 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 uh, the, the anthropological narrative of Deuteronomy, essentially Yah is ousted. That's why we have another tower, another Migdal, a giant thing that is like essentially a ziggurat. It's the Tower of Babel, Migdal Babel. And uh, through a coalition, a, a, a grouping together of the hosts of heaven, these gods and, and a unified mankind, there's a rebellion. And Yah essentially just seeds, C-E-D-E-S, like just gives over, hands over, seeds the scene realm to, the na to these gods and the nations that ensue and divides them up according to the number of the sons of God, this narrative, you know, except one nation. And he takes for himself an, an old, barren nomad and just like kind of follows around, wanders around with him. <laughs> and, uh, right. and that's Avraham. And, uh, and, and that's Jacob now that, in this that, position. Well, that's Jacob's gonna... granddad. And so right. there's this process. God first promised that to Abraham. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. But he says it about his seed. You see, see he, doesn't, he doesn't just say your God. There are peculiar promises to Abraham where Yahweh says, I will be their God, your seed's God. And they, your seed will be my people. So it's like not established in Abraham's day. Yeah. Abraham doesn't even get a foot of the land until Sarah dies. And he gets a little place to bury her. Yah re, uh, reminds and recapitulates and reinstantiates that covenant to Yitzchak. And then now with Yaakov, this is what we're seeing right here. Right. It's like he's really going to do it. And, and we're getting a step closer because Yaakov gets it. The, the way. So we can understand what it means to, for him to be their goddess. We're going to have a place. We're not just going to be nomads forever. We will get back. The land. We will get we will get a land, but we will get back the nations. This is like like immediately right after Migdal Bavo and the 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 handing over of the nations to the gods, and it was very sad. You know, essentially Yahweh is rejected. Yahweh becomes a homeless wanderer, but he immediately pivots to Avram. Avram, and the first blessing to Avram has to do with the nations again. Yes, it's like we will bless all the nations, and they will come to you, and we will get the nations back. And so there is this <laughs> geographical concern. And, uh, and he's so patient, you know, like we're in now we're in the third generation away from Abraham and, and here's this young, younger man, Yaakov, and mm -hmm. he has this experience and God's like, you're going to, like, he rightly understands. I will construct this shrine on this place. You, then you will, then you'll be my God. And we, what does he, how does he understand that? How does he understand the function of you will be my God? Let's go to that verse. Cause it's near our last, uh, it's really great because he reveals what he thinks it means. Um, and essentially, like, he says, hey, if you return me in safety, you give me food, you know, and clothing, which is, and, and you bring me in shalom back to my father's house, then, okay, uh, he says, that's, so we'll start in verse 21. shalom uh, And if you bring me in shalom and safety and wellness and wholeness back to my father's house, 
then here's the promise on his end of the vow. Vehaya, and it will be so. And it will be that Yah will be to me le Elohim. Which means Yah is not to him as Elohim. Pause. <laughs> God is Yah is not, or El Shaddai at this time is what he would have been called, is not to Yaakov as God, or for God, or functioning as God. Pause. Will be. If you do this stuff, then you will be my God. Now, so is Jacob just seeing like a dude standing beside him and he's like, yeah, I'm Yahweh, your God. And Jacob's like, oh, then you'll be my God. We don't know what he saw. I would say he saw a trans, I would say he saw a being that was overwhelming because he was terrified. I think the being was next to him though. Yeah. Um, And he says, but if you do this stuff, then you'll be my God. Well, what does he mean by Yahweh will be his God? Then Yahweh will be my God. Well, what does he mean? The very next verse explains what he means by that. This stone, this stone, this stone that I have placed as a pillar, an erected pillar. Uh, again, it's just like layered, layered, layered. It's like, it's like structureception. <laughs> this mm-hmm. stone he had laid his head on is itself now erected as a pillar, which is a a nod to the structure, which is itself a nod to him laying down in the scene realm, and it is a nod to a future structure that will be erected. It's like structureception. Yeah. So, um, and actually, I, I know that you know sixth grade mind for men. Erectception is probably the best way to say it. But um, so he, he says, the stone that I have set up will be Beit Elohim, a house, which is another word for family. His understanding of being God is like being part of the family and being head of house, head of a house. It will be the house of God, the whole asher, and all, and all, asher titen, and all that you give to me, aser, a, as, sorry, a asorenu lach, a tenth I will, uh, it's like a doubling down in Hebrew. Like most assuredly, a tenth. I will. You'll get a, a tenth of all that's mine, that you give me. This idea of a tenth is it is the it's a priesthood. It's a promise to set up a house for this God based on that structure, and it will be rightly, uh, it will be rightly navigated, rightly incorporated. This house, rightly instantiated, with a priesthood. Okay. okay. It, 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 and, it, and, and so there's this promise is laden with so many things. It's like, oh my gosh. This is actually the whole damn point. This vision is the whole point of the Torah. This vision is the whole point of the Torah. To, to construct this man-made mountain, that God would actually come and live locally with Israel. Whole point. It's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> God. Um. Yeah. Jeez. That's. That's heavy. Uh, I did. I had another question. I need to think about it. You can um, think about it. I, I just. I want to throw. I don't want to drown you. But I mean, I don't want dead time. So I'm just going to throw it out there, guys. Go to John chapter one. Yes. Amen. No. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, this. The question. Who is Yeshua of Nazareth? 
מי יש לו של הנצרת? הוא איז ישוע אב נזרת. He's a son of Israel. Yes. He is. Yes. He is the staircase. Yes. He is God. Yes. Uh, he is the pillar. It's bizarre. It's he is the priesthood. Mm-hmm. He is the, the son oil. of Jacob. Yeah, exactly. This is. I mean, it is. He is the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one who the the, the Mashiach, the one who was anointed thusly. He's the bridge. He's the... And by the way, do you know what else he calls it? This is helpful for... I got to throw it in there for our gospel reading. I'm going to go backwards. Well, I did have a question. Go for it. Ask the question. Um, I, I guess when I thought about, like, Jacob saying he, he'll be my God, yes. um, I want to... And I, I don't want us to... We're about an hour and 15 in. Okay. Because um, I do want to talk about how you parallel this to prayer. Um, we might yeah. not have time for that because that's yeah, so yeah, dense. Yeah. It is dense. Um, but I did want to ask, like, how could I, in 2022, mm-hmm. as a follower of Yeshua, yeah. like, I don't want to say, like what you were saying, I don't want to say, you know, he's just the God. So he's all of our God. That's right. Like, yeah. how do yeah, I right. have the heart, like Yaakov, to say, Yeshua is my God. Sure. Because I feel like I'm sure. so... Uh, the world today is yeah. so bound to what is yeah. not divine, what is not yeah, not spiritual. Yeah, we've almost devolved away from. Yeah. If Yeshua is alive, then spiritual practices are a lot more heavy than how we make them today Absolutely. in our techn- quote unquote technologically advanced civilization. Absolutely. We make spirituality seem like it's stupid or or ignorant. Um, or but impotent. I want to sure. impotent. But it's like it's actually a lot. The, the brevity of taking it seriously mm. is, I mean, it you should treat it seriously. And I want to, like, how do I treat Yeshua like my God? Sure. Not sure, even sure, knowing sure. or having a, a basis in yeah. the world of yeah. people that support that. Okay. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, this is deep. It's, it's deep. a deep, yeah. No, it's I great, know, though. It's... I mean, that's the, you're the right, that, that's great, brother. That's, I mean, we need to pivot to that because we want to equip people. I will say this, that... Um, just show me the money. That's the ancient's view of religiosity. That's one of the reasons they just like they'll just like, oh, this guy's doing shit. I'll okay, I'll worship him. Oh, this other guy's doing more shit for that guy. I'll worship that one too. Show me the money. I like that. You know, I like that approach because it's like, dude, I'm not gonna do something that doesn't work. It needs to be effective. So then a question arises: Can I do these rituals, spirituality? Can I pursue spirituality in a way that's impotent and effective? Sure, you can. <laughs> <laughs> and can I do it in a way that's potent and powerful? Sure you can. And so there's a way to be rightly arranged or a way to be wrongly arranged. This is helpful. I'm going to talk again about the structure of a ziggurat so I can touch what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, as a metaphor, just imagine it's all Russian eggs. You know, if you're familiar with the babushka Russian, Russian eggs, right, where you have right. a, a person inside of a person inside of, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, it, we could think of that metaphorically as a mountain <laughs> from a base. If you imagine tectonic plates, uh, crashing into each other under the ground before they touch the groundest level, they start to hit and it raises up a mound, which out of that mound emerges more of a head and a peak. And eventually, you know, eventually we have a, a mountain, a bona fide mountain in a similar way. Uh, there are, I, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, it's kind of a shorthand parable that I use for explaining this tiered T I E R E D not tear like I'm crying, mm-hmm. this tiered image of God concept. It's a parable. Um, and and this, this concept is absolutely throughout the scriptures. Okay. Uh, the tabernacle and the Torah, this is their largest concern. The God is like, how do you teach 
these slaves to be human? How do you teach Israel to be my image after centuries of enslavement and exposure to idolatry? How do I teach these illiterate people to be my image? The answer to that is the tabernacle. The, I mean, it is a, it is a LARPing. He teaches them through ritual, which is LARPing. And the LARPing is not impotent and empty and fake because he promises to back them with power. <laughs> and, 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 and so the arrangement of let's build a tabernacle with very specific specifications and very specific vessels and a shrine that has inner layers, more complex, each layer you go up. And by the way, when they would find a place for it to stay, it's very likely they would find elevated ground to put that tabernacle. Okay, yeah. Um, like a city on a hill, this kind of picture, because it, they would want to put it on high ground. And then essentially the entirety of their life orbits around the tabernacle. But the tabernacle has a function. It's to teach them God's image, what it means to be a human. So it's anthropomorphized. And so what you can imagine with the ziggurat is, let, let's just imagine these spaces. And I'll start with the tabernacle. Um, the highest space is actually an, a, a constructed space that's elevated off the ground inside the Enerma Shrine. It's the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. That's where Yah sits. It's a throne. But the space in which he sits is called the, the Holy of Holies, this inner shrine. That's a space. So that's the second space. The third space is the holy place, which is that tent that's behind that curtain. You have the bread of presence, the, uh, the menorah with the, the seven lights. Only priests can go here. Notice how appropriate class or appropriate maturity. It's a better way to say that status, appropriate maturity, appropriate status of maturity has to be matched. The high priest can only, so like the God, the glory, the Shekinah, the name of Yahweh is the only thing that can sit on that throne. The high priest is only allowed to go in the Holy, the Holy of Holies once a year, the right time when it shifts. The priests, only the priests, the sons of Aaron are allowed to go into the, the holy place at the appropriate times more frequently. The Levites are the ones who are the guardians for the courtyard, okay? And they have to guard, and the sons of Israel can carefully enter, okay? Um, that's that, that's the, the, so now we're, we've gone the ark, space one, holy of holy, space two, holy place, space three, the courtyard, which is where the altar was, where Israel got to enter, right? Space four, okay? And what's interesting is, is what about, if it, essentially this is an, anthropomorph, an anthropomorphization of God, where are that's his in, that's like his inner life because you know it's it's hidden from view what are his members the externally facing parts of god it is it's literally um on the east moshe and aaron there his head his eyes his mouth his ears then you have the uh korach was in i can't remember which of the three clans but essentially you have his arms and his feet and his members or the levitical it's essentially aaron and Moshe at the east, and the Levites wrapping around that form God's body. I will be in your midst. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. They're the anthropomorphization. They're the hands and feet of God, so to speak, right? And then the people are literally the other tribes arranged, Judah on the east, and uh, you work your way around, around them, right? There is people. So what I've just named there are six spaces, the seven spaces, the realm of stuff or land. Let's, let's go through it again. We have the ark. At the top, the holy, the most, the holy of holies, the holy place, the courtyard, the Levitical barrier, okay, uh, the uh, it, the Israelite tribes themselves, the people, they're the fulfillment of the other end of that bargain. 
they're God's people. <laughs> and the head of the people part is Judah. The head of the God part is Aaron. Mm -hmm. right? That's why you have two Mashiachs, two anointed ones, ultimately, um, two Messiahs, you know, Aaron, Aaron, the high priest, and then the king that will arise from the line of Judah. Um, and then outside of that... The oh, wow, so Yeshua is both. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, the, yeah, it's subsuming all these roles. And, uh, and then you have outside of that the realm of space, land, or stuff. The goyim are there. The lepers are there. Okay. Um, and so what you end up having is um, from the most basic to the most complex. Right? You could call these, sp these spaces... Each, if you built a ziggurat, right, like one of the earliest pyramids had six spaces. They, they hovered between different numbers, you know, steps or tiers. They're mounds. Each mound, while well, if you squint at it, the whole thing is echad, it's one. Eventually, this idea became so important for the kings, divinized kings, by the way. A way to, how do I visually show that the, the kings are divinized and untouchable and you can't replace them? Well, you would do pyramids the way the Egyptians end up engineering it where you can't, you literally can't ascend it. <laughs> Like it's not it's it's the same concept pyramids the 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 the, the more developed Egyptian period pyramids, but it's essentially saying no man can ascend, and it belongs to Paro to Pharaoh, <laughs> um, and so it's just like kind of a davka, you know, and uh, and there really was you can look it up like you can look it up there was a lot of tension between the Pharaoh the dynastic succession of Pharaohs and the priesthood, a lot of problems there you even see that in the Torah, um, so the ziggurat represents these spaces, it's going to be the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to be the first fulfillment of this. God is literally, like, I, I, no joke, dude. God is going to literally appear in a bush, like a tree, which is a, a kind of shrub tree, which is probably what Adam and Chava ate from, to Moshe. He's going to take them all the way around to an actual mountain, Mount Sinai, and what's he going to tell them to do on the mountain? Give them instructions on how to build them a tent, a cosmic mountain. And that's huh. how Exodus 40, that's how Exodus, that's how Exodus ends. Exodus ends by... Moshe takes all the parts that have been constructed thusly and he erects it and sets it up. And then the, the, the kavod, the glory, the very presence of Yah, fills it and lives among the people. <laughs> right? And so the ziggurat is a foretaste of that for Yaakov to see it. And we can't imagine that we have these realms, right? We have the, the land and the space of Gentiles, the outside, the, the, the material realm stuff. We then have the people part, you know? And then you have the God part, but essentially the God part is the individual because we're made in the form of God. And so we end up having this idea that we have a structure to our identity. We have an ontological structure that has been conferred to us and handed down. A great way to, I mean, I'm going to sound like fucking gobbledygook to some people, and that's okay. Maybe we can put some <laughs> pictures on or something. Um, I don't think you can put thumbs down in Spotify, so. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> but, uh, but you'll find a way. I mean, you can find so a way. So I guess, well, if I can, if I can, if I can transcribe it, translate I, I guess sure essentially the structure of the tabernacle mm -hmm. is a parallel what jacob saw as this mm -hmm. ziggurat yes. as this staircase yes will be translated yes god will fulfill his promise uh -huh. in translating mm -hmm. this cosmic structure mm -hmm. in the form of the tabernacle yes which represents us as his image bearers yes or Yes, image bears. It also represents his very image. And this is the interesting word, okay? The word uh, bana or bina, okay, to build in Hebrew. Binyan is building, okay? R related, okay? Um, 
Kavnit. It's a nominal form of it. It means pattern. Okay. Watch. So it means pattern or order. Dune, literally, Moshe is on the mount, on Mount Sinai. God shows him a pattern. A Tavnit. And based on that, it's a basis. Another way to translate it is it's a basis. It's a pattern to be repeated. Another word to say that, and, and it would a better way to translate it possibly is, it's a template to be duplicated. It's a pattern. It's the original pattern. Right. An instantiation of the pattern to be duplicated is what he sees. And then based on that, he constructs everything. Now, right. what's interesting is he doesn't construct it. He has to somehow depict or inscribe. We don't know how he does that, that pattern. And Bezalel, who has the spirit, is supposed to construct it. Now, this pattern itself is called the image of God. Now, this is literally the word used in Deuteronomy and Devarim. Do not make anything according to the pattern or model of a man, a woman, a beast. He's using this word because it's not like there's not a pattern and not structures. He's saying the only authorized pattern or structure I'm giving you is the tabernacle because really the only one that is truly my image is you guys. Humans are my image. Don't build other images based on another pattern, right? Um, and so, but the tabernacle itself is has patterns. Each vessel of furniture is based on a top neat, even possibly based on that same pattern recapitulated. This is very significant for the book of Hebrews because it is saying it is in accordance with these patterns that God instantiates himself, reveals himself, and tries to tell people what it means to be human and that they are his. He simultaneously, when God reveals himself to mankind, he is simultaneously revealing things about us because we're his children, we're made in his image. He's trying to teach us about us when he teaches us about himself. You know, huh. and um, Yeshua as is like the oh my gosh right pattern. Oh, this is for, it, in in a very very small way of putting it. Sure, one way to say that is the very one way to say it is is the way that okay. So the Targum is the the Aramaic translation of the the Torah in Hebrew, right? And so when you get to Genesis one and it says they're made in the image of God, it doesn't say that in Targum. Targum says the the Mimra they're made according to the image of the Mimra or the Word of God. Um, and literally, if you have an image of God, you know, ancient Jewish people reason this way, reason thusly and rabbinically and ask these questions. If you have an image of God, does, is that image a thing that's the basis that has a life of its own? <laughs> and, and so that, that's an early thought. And, and they would say, yeah, it does. We call that thing the chokhmah, the wisdom, or we call it the mimra, the word, the very thing, the, that, that, that image is itself a being. That is why Hebrews opens up with it saying Yeshua is the image of a God, the image with a the, um, the image of images. Um, and <laughs> this is kind of the idea. Now, what if the image himself instantiated and became a shadow image among us? That's essentially what, you're trying to, what we're trying to wrap our heads around when we describe the incarnation. Um, and so it's a staircase. Out of these basic things emerge these complex things and, and the interesting thing is god's desire is echad, to be one to be unified he desires to join himself heaven is like a i know this is a male in the earth the scene realm is like a female so god's a lot of times god's kavod the jews would depict it as a you know a male member okay that's what the male member is very important in the torah that's not just like a later innovation you know um and so god joins with the female which is which is earth and so the image of god at the top a conscience which is, it's the equivalent of the ark. There is a space inside of man that is to be filled or joined and made, and made echad. Um, and then what's interesting is that it's almost like he commands creation to rise up and emerge 
But then the purpose of it, that emergence is for him to join with it and then cascade down and then fill everything. So the, the telos is that all things might be filled with right. himself. And so, so it is, it is God. If, if we're talking about us as that yeah. arrangement yeah. as us as that pattern, that's right. Him filling our conscience first and then moving Bingo. through that, that'd be, that would be the idea. Now, um, that would be the idea. And this is a, that's a, we're good. I don't want to take it too far. Yes, that's good enough. That's yeah. for now. Um, and so what we could imagine when we see the ziggurat is that ziggurat is itself a way to teach humans what they really are and how to be rightly arranged because we can be inappropriately arranged. Um, and so we have the idea of, you know, I, I and the parable I use, we have uh, stuff and people. Okay. And then, so you have me and mine, right? And there's seven spaces. You have stuff which out of stuff emerges the space of people out of, and each space has its own medium. It can be arranged differently in the parable. Each uh, out of people emerges the individual, but the individual first is the space of the members. Uh -huh. Out of that emerges the space of the gut, okay, which correlates to the courtyard. Out of that emerges the space of the heart. The gut would be emotions or like what is the gut? Good question. Um, so if you imagine, it's very strange. This is very deep. Some of this is about a life cycle of a human. The ten, Even the ten words have reference to life cycle of a human. Like, for example, commitment one and two correlate to commitment five. Because God is the father and mother that we proceed from in, in the heavenly. Like the, the first three commands. Life cycle means you're going to be constantly. Well, no, listen to this. Like the first, the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. The first humans you have come in contact, you spring forth from them. That's vertically above you. Do not murder. In the Torah, that's correlated with brothers. They're the ones who grow up with you, next to you. Um, do not commit adultery. The seventh, which is essentially the next human, when you graduate, it will be a woman that you take and join with, and then you'll produce seed with. The eighth, do not steal, which has to do with when you're in a local community. The ninth, neighbor. not bearing false... Your neighbor. There you go. Your ninth, not bearing false witness, which has to do with a community. And the tenth, do not cover, which has to do with the whole nation anyone and so you end up saying if you do that that's actually an order mm -hmm. of a human life cycle first parents then brothers right and then, so, you, so okay my, so my point is this is you have this uh out of you can correlate the gut to kind of like an infant or a child not a, it really members have to do with infants you know like they just yeah. are, you're just arriving it's essentially the formation i think it's what people you know one way to metaphorically think about it is what people call terrible twos where the inner person is starting to develop that's not fully developed, but they're starting to develop, you know, um, very childlike. And so this, the medium of that space tends to be like, if you read the prophets, it's intense primal emotions. They're not sensations. Like sensations, I pinch your arm, you know, mm -hmm. you have pain or something like this or whatever. Or if you, you know, being very, not being crass, but like if you orgasm or something, mm -hmm. it's a sensation. Right. The, um, the, it's a step above sensation, but it's not exactly emotions or complex feelings. These are primal craving uh, more like pleasure pain pleasure pain and it is emotional Emer emotions are beginning to emerge but really when we get to the space of the heart complex emotions are the the stuff of relationship because when the heart emerges then we have essentially uh we have the beginnings of an individual and i the beginnings of an identity not yet an identity but the the, the real necessary beginnings of an identity which is essentially an enclosed space that's why the tent is fully enclosed. Nobody sees what's inside of it. So you don't know what's going on in someone's heart. Okay. But inside that heart, there are pictures inscribed all over it. Heavenly beings are stitched into the framework. Now, you don't see that from the outside. From the outside, you just see dyed, like black dyed skin. Like it's, it's opaque. Nobody sees into the heart. 
That's why you need a light inside of it anyways, right? But um, inside that space, you have all these pictures of cherubim and stuff like this stitched. The priests tell the people, yeah, we've done this. Now, Beitzalel tells Moshe and there's that oversight, but technically a priest could go a priest could go in there and just stitch pictures of Baal, which they do in Ezekiel. They carve pictures of other gods, other images in these spaces, and they could, they could lie to Israel and say, yeah, we've got the right things in there. But secretly, the stuff they're envisioning and playing around in their heart, right? The things they've etched in, murder and adultery and anger, you know? And so you have like the, the space of the heart. Out of that space emerges the mind, which is the most important. And the altar of incense is the thing that bridges the heart and the mind. It's prayer, right? Incense is correlated to prayer. And so that mind, you can't just step into the presence of the one sitting on that throne, dude. Except now we can. That's why Hebrews is so revolutionary, because we can boldly enter that throne room, covered in the blood of the Lamb, and, and engage directly, you know? And so, this, I mean, this is really important. This is foundation. If you wanted to teach, you know, uh, the, the, so the foundational elements for Israel would be the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. But then the question becomes, what's the schoolroom? What's the, uh, it, it, that'd be like saying, this is your job, X-Men. Well, where do we practice our job? What's the danger room? <laughs> mm -hmm. The danger room, where do I learn the Ten Commandments? The tabernacle. That, I mean, that is the way that you're supposed to simulate and learn. Um, and it's not like they're just doing nothing. Uh, God will literally, on the basis of what these guys do with this little tent, he'll honor their movements and decisions, and he'll wipe out nations on the basis of it, or not wipe out nations. If they do it incorrectly, they don't, you know, like this is great power unleashed. I mean, one of the, one of the most powerful stories in all of scripture is priests rightly arranged decimate armies because they lift their hands, pray Psalms and just worship God for his love. How be, you know, Jehoshaphat, this, this Davidic descendant, he, he calls everyone to the temple to, to, to arrange a fast because invaders are coming. You're like, dude, what are you doing? Why are you calling women and children and people to fast? You got to get prepared. Go make a covenant with Egypt or something, right? Like, you know, people. So, so you can defeat this. No, dude. We make everyone come to the temple. Everyone fast and pray. We weep. We cry out to God. Yahushaphat prays on behalf of the people and intercedes and says, that's for us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you because only you can pull our feet from the net. A priest in the line of Aaron stands up and prophesies and says, this is what the Spirit of God says. What are you doing standing here? Gird your loins and get your stuff together and go out and march. I'll be with you. They obey. They start preparing. Meanwhile, who does Jehoshaphat put at the front of his army? These same priests who are in the temple. He puts them at the front, in the front lines. What's their job? All they do is dance and raise their hands and over and over again praise the love of God. They say, they say, Yahweh tov, le'olam chasto. Yahweh tov, Yahweh hu tov, le'olam chasto. It means Yahweh is good. His loyal love endures forever. Yahweh is good. His loyal love endures forever. The narrative of the Tanakh tells us that as soon as they began to arrange themselves thusly and start singing on a three-day march, mind you, as soon as they began singing this, uh, the kavod, the glory, the spirit of Yah goes down onto the enemy battlefield, which is a, a coalition of three nations. And he sends, a, he sends a panic. I don't remember if it's a disease or a panic. I'm pretty sure it's a panic and a confusion that the coalition breaks down. And they start an in, inter-tribal skirmish and start killing each other and destroying yeah. each other. And by the time they get, it says at the very moment that the priest started to sing, Yahweh does this. And when they get there, they're like ready for war, ready for blood. They get there and all they see is an empty, abandoned encampment with left behind uh, booty to, to pillage. Yeah. And treasure. And it's like he fought their battle for him. But how? 
because of the temple. I mean, you read 1 Kings 8 when Shlomo, Solomon builds it and erects it. This is their battle plan. This is their fulcrum. This is the center of everything. They literally orbit it. Their biggest decision. So now you talk about like rightly navigating that structure, rightly orbiting it and moving. It's like a nucleus. Yeah. That's prayer. That's what we are supposed to do. What's incredible is like this, this Russian egg kind of, you know, image of Godception. You now, you are the temple. You have a space for God to dwell. Most powerfully, God dwells in you. But what's bizarre is the spirit of God that used to come on prophets came on a prophet who himself was the prophetic word who became a prophet. <laughs> Yeshua is try to track with it. He gets, uh, I mean, people's Christology, people are going to lose their mind when I articulate Christology this way, but I'm just, I'm sticking to it in narrative form. So I'm offering a Christology from a narrative. The prophetic word, the word of God becomes a prophet. That spirit is on him, never leaves him. He offers himself by it. Everybody, we went through this in last week's podcast about the death of the Messiah and the Asham. That spirit never leaves him and never forsakes him. He offered himself by the spirit. The spirit stays with him and hovers over him for three days. Okay? He's with him. And that spirit is accredited with the resurrection. The spirit raises up the man Yeshua of Nazareth. But the interesting thing is, is somehow at this point, he has become, he becomes a life-giving spirit. He is subsumed. That thing, that Jewish thing that was the word become flesh, it ends up being subsumed within and part of the spirit that raised him. So this now Yeshua thing, which is already now a Russian egg and a Russian egg and a mm -hmm. Russian egg, ascends to the right hand of the Father. And the story doesn't end there. According to Pentecost, that thing, that life-giving spirit, Paul says he became a life-giving spirit, descends and then fills your conscience. You, you are now sacred space. You are, you are a mountain. You are Mount Sinai. You're the ziggurat, which is why tongues of fire descended on saints. We're like an altar. We become the sacred space now. The safest position in these arrangements, by the way, is the cultic space, the safest space, or the sacred space. You know, the threat of sin and iniquity always touches the people first. But wrath breaks out to protect the sanctum. The safest place in terms of the most exile-proof place in all of these covenantal arrangements is sanctum. And that's why it's the very last thing to be to be left. Yahweh abandons, he, Yahweh takes 400 years, over 400 years to abandon the temple that Shlomo built. Over 400 years. Even while the kind of destruction of iniquity and conquest starts getting close and encroaching, whatever, mm -hmm. he doesn't leave it until the days of Ezekiel. And he leaves sacred space. And the sad thing is when he leaves sacred space, he won't go back to it. He the won't. sanctum being the sanct. The, well, no, there the sanctum is the holy of holies in Solomon's temple, right? Where, or the holy of holies in Moshe's tabernacle, right? And here's what's weird: people don't know this. This is a really cool thing. What happened to the tabernacle? People don't know this. It's incredible. Read Chronicles. The tabernacle is put into the holy of holies in Solomon's temple. The whole tabernacle. The whole tabernacle. It's like templeception. They take the tabernacle and they put it in. They don't get rid of it. This would be like saying, what happens to the body of Yeshua? Well, whatever was in that tomb gets subsumed into this new thing. Um, and, wow. Wow. <laughs> and this is, a, this, is an Old Testament, uh, this is an Old Testament argument for a bodily resurrection. There's no other way. It's a bodily resurrection. 
you know, so this cosmic Christ bullshit, you know, like, um, <laughs> sure, he's cosmic, but he's earthly too. You know? Right. Um, right. Sorry, this is, a, I mean, this is, a no, really, this is like, let's just slap some meat on it. No, this is that's, a... <laughs> I mean, some freaking wine gravy. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I love that story about um, Jehoshaphat and, uh, is that, that's who you're talking about? Yeah, Jehoshaphat, yeah, it's right, Jehoshaphat. That's exactly it just, right. it's the same, it's, it's the same, like, Jacob also, he erects essentially the house of God. Yes. With this stone, and yeah. essentially, you said it was—it's the temple that yes. that carried like the priest to dance in front of the line, and it's they're they're just doing what they're just like God's gonna God's gonna take the wheel on this one. We're gonna do what he says, you know. Jesus, take the wheel. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> God dang it, man. <laughs> I just, I just mean you. like it's, I love it. He, I'm no. just I I I think he really loves when people hold him to what he says he's gonna do. Yeah. And they and they yeah. don't like think if he's. I mean, it's they they stick to that trust and that's exactly it's, right. It yeah. I, I don't know. I mean that it's a that's a long talk after, but like I I just I that's one thing too that's like. Just in case, sorry, I'm gonna cut you off. Did you have some? No, no, no. I don't no. want to forget because I, I know, I know, I know we're kind of coming to the close here, but I want to leave this because it'll touch this week's gospel yes. reading. And if you're hearing this, and this is like gobbledygook or overwhelming, you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> I can tell. <totally laughs> but but, uh, but if you're hearing this and you're like, this is wetting my appetite, and there were like there are things that were firing off. I don't know how to make sense out of it, but something inside me is brought to life by this. Okay, just like if you were gonna enter the structure, the first place you go is through the gate. You start with the gate, you know? Like, yeah, you want to get to the innermost room and be with God, but you start with the gate. And I would just say that, you know, Genesis twenty-eight seventeen, it says, when they started to realize all this stuff, it was awe. It was fear. It was a deep, majestic kind of fear. V'yirah, Yaakov, okay? V'yirah, v'yomer, he was afraid, deeply afraid, and he saw, and he says, Ma'anorah, how fearful, how awesome, ha'makomazeh, how fearful and awesome is this place that I've seen? It's... It's ontologically overwhelming. It is, it's, it's heavy, dude. This is heavy. How heavy is Hamakomaze, this place? Enze. Okay. There's Enze ki im bet Elohim. It's nothing else other than the house of God. It didn't look that way to his eyes when he laid his head on that rock. You know, he realized there's something to this place that's beyond what just I see with my eyes. Right. And there's this this awe. And here's what he says, and he calls it something else. He doesn't just call it Beit Elohim. He says, V'zeh Sha'ar HaShemayim. And this is the gate of the heavens. Okay. We all want a gate. How the hell do we get there? If we want to get to heaven, the heavens, not, you know, the weird... Jeez Louise, weird evangelical kids going to, and I don't mean that. Right. Um, how do we, right. get, how do we get, if they really went to heaven, praise God, but uh, uh, how do we get there? We go through the gate. And in this week's gospel reading, you know, this is Yeshua. He is all of it. He subsumes all these roles, but he is also the gate. And he's the good shepherd. And he's the dude standing by with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm with you. Let's go through the gate. Yeah. You know? I think that's a really, you know, beautiful promise. So if there, if you have any longing in you when you hear this stuff, like, dude, talk to Yeshua. He will take you by the hand. He'll be with you. He'll lead you through that gate and give you deeper understanding, you know? Yes. Amen. Thank you, bro.